0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
1: Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 373, Book Session Identity Crisis, Part 2. In this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, you're going to hear the mutual interrogations from the session you heard the opening statements from last time. Now, I had spent probably too much time preparing for this in the days leading up to the session. I had prepared way more questions than I knew I was going to be able to use. In fact, I had 10 of them for Dr. Craig. I had tentatively picked out a couple of them, but based on what Craig said in his opening, I chose another one. So as we went into this mutual interrogation session, the things that had stuck with me most were these statements from Dr. Craig's opening. First, his ultra-minimalistic definition of what he thinks he can find in the Bible.
0: The burden of my contribution to this volume is to show that the Bible teaches an elementary version of the doctrine of the Trinity, according to which, one, there is exactly one God, and 2 there are exactly 3 persons who are properly called god
1: a very oddly threadbare statement as i later point out it's not clear why this would rule out modalism it's not really clear why it would rule out subordinationism even when he specifies that properly means literally now like many a lesser apologist Dr. Craig had kind of almost shifted the topic from the Trinity to the deity of Christ. Many a popular apologist does this because with regard to the Trinity, there's not a lot to work with in the Bible. It's difficult to argue from the Bible. Whereas the deity of Christ, they imagine, is just a slam dunk. Look, Jesus is called God, right? Right. I mean, what's not to love? Obviously, full deity of Christ, right? just ignoring the whole early and modern era history of subordinationist interpretations about the Son and the Spirit, for all those same passages, of course. Dr. Craig thinks that he's shown,
0: He is called God in the same sense that the Father is called God.
1: Of course, I don't think he's shown that at all. And i didn't interact more with his mighty exegesis of those eight passages in the book because i just thought he hadn't come anywhere close to showing that i thought a lot of what he said was just special pleading like oh come on what else could it mean but this this being divinity not in the highest sense which implies being a god but some kind of second level divinity as would be needed by a divine person which is not a god that's what his theory needs I don't even think that's a sense of the word theos in the New Testament now as to actually clarifying what on earth the doctrine of the Trinity really is supposed to amount to on a metaphysical level again he gave a shockingly minimalistic stab at it saying this
0: so far as the biblical doctrine of the Trinity is concerned the model component more or less takes care of itself it seems to me that a disarmingly simple model of the biblical doctrine may be stated as follows. God is an immaterial tripersonal being. That's it.
1: <laughs> well, in the book I point out that metaphysically speaking this is really opaque. What does it mean to be tripersonal? What's the relationship between God and these cognitive faculties that he talks about, and how is that supposed to result in some sort of tri-personality? I push him on this in the book, but here, you know, his confidence is undiminished. He's very proud that this just is so simple and obviously understandable. It's not, but at any rate, notice that he has said that the one God is the triune God. And I think anyone listening would think that in his opening statement, the one God is supposed to be the Trinity. It's not clear how to put this together with some of the things that he says in the book, as I bring up in a bit. Now, as regards my own views, after celebrating his mighty exegesis of those eight Jesus being called God passages, his basic move that you remember from last time is to say that my interpretation of the New Testament, on which these authors identify the one God with the Father alone, that interpretation has to be mistaken because the modern concept of identity is an anachronism. It's something that very few ancient people would have understood. Maybe only Aristotle and a couple of friends, but certainly not the authors of the New Testament. And so they simply can't be identifying the one God with, well, anything, including the Father. You're going to hear a lot more about this supposed insight later in this podcast. So let's go to moderator Tim Stratton with some quick ground rules for these interactions. All right. Thank you to each panelist. Now, each panelist has approximately five minutes to directly ask other panelists questions. So, to prevent filibustering, answers to direct questions
0: should be succinct as possible, generally less than a minute, and if
1: not, then I'll interrupt. Um, But an organic back-and-forth exchange is encouraged. So, on behalf of Dr. Hasker, uh, Dr. McIntosh,
2: you have the floor. So a question to put to Dr. Branson. So let's set aside the question of what different kinds of things can be called hubastases uh, in the Father's writings. The question is, are the Father, Son, and Spirit all the same kind of thing, or does the Father differ
3: from the Son and Spirit in some ontologically significant way? it depends on what you mean by kind of thing. I mean, if by kind of thing, you mean what people would call a nature or essence in antiquity, then no. If you're just using it sort of in a loose sense to mean something like, is there an important difference between them or something, then I'd say, yeah, there's an important difference, just that the, uh, the Father is unbegotten, uh, the Son and the Spirit uh, are begotten and proceed. But a person isn't just a nature or essence, right? No. What is a person? I mean, you can define person however you want. If we're talking about hypostasis, uh, as the, the Fathers use that, it, it's roughly a Uh, A concrete subject. And is the Son a person in that sense? Yeah, it's a hypothesis. And the
2: Spirit also? Mm -hmm. So we have three concrete uh, persons in that sense?
3: Mm
1: -hmm. So, at least on the face of it, Dr. Branson, like Dr. Hasker, posits three divine selves. Although for Branson, one of those just is the one true God. And he's following the ancient Nicene view that osseity is not implied by divinity. So the fact that God exists independently and is the source of all else, that doesn't imply that he's the only divine one, because I guess that's his personal property and uh, not something connected to his being divine. Interestingly, something Craig and I would both deny. But now, Dr. Hasker, through book editor, Dr. Chad McIntosh, has a couple of very pointed questions for me.
2: Uh, How do you explain the fact that there are no credible New Testament scholars (laughs) who agree with your view that the New Testament uniformly presents a view of Jesus as ontologically human and nothing more?
1: Well, you do have PhDs who think that's true of the synoptic gospels and probably of Acts too. Why not? I guess people think pre-existence is obvious and uh, the kind of arguments uh, from Christians like me are just not part of the discussion. As a philosopher, you know, if I'm studying free will or something like that, my first task is to find the strongest arguments for all the different sides. This is not done in academic theology, and so it, it's just off the table, it's not considered. They're overlooking the minority report from the early Reformation and also from, you know, the times of Origen, novation, and Tertullian, who all repeatedly complain about, quote, mere man Christians in the mainstream churches.
2: Thank you. A second question for Dr. Tuggy is, uh, in John 16, 13, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would guide the disciples into all truth. But on your approach, it would seem that the Spirit's efforts have resulted in massive failure on precisely a point that is of overriding importance to Unitarians, namely, monotheism and the unity of God. What are you to make of that?
1: Well, this kind of argument from Divine Providence, I think, takes a lot of guts to urge if you're a Protestant and an open theist. Like Hasker is, if you didn't know that. (laughs) Because Protestants think that the mainstream sometimes... God allows it to go wrong on very important things for a very long time. I don't think God's Spirit failed, because what happened is the mainstream small-c Catholic tradition actually preserves in its creeds, especially the older ones, all the stuff I think is essential to the Gospel. So I think what's essential to the Gospel is basically what's preached in Acts. And this is preached in even Roman Catholic churches. So God's not going to get rid of this because it's preserving the truth even while it's layering in all this other stuff. I thought those were pretty good answers, given the severe time constraints. The whole time, I was aware that I had to answer very concisely, and so I was trying hard to do that. Next, Dr. Craig has a question for Dr. Branson.
0: You say, and I'm quoting, suppose Tuggy says, sorry, my theory of the Trinity isn't really what Gregory of Nyssa believed. And you respond, who cares? It's not unbiblical, nor- And I say a Protestant, not... Protestant
3: might respond, a Sola Scriptura Protestant.
0: Excuse me? A
3: Sola Scriptura Protestant might respond.
0: All right. Yeah. yeah, so suppose Tuggy says that, and you say, who cares? It's not unbiblical, nor incoherent. So it's not this tradition that you are beholden to, and it's not properly Trinitarian. But by your lights and Tuggy's, that doesn't matter. Now, in saying this, it seems to me you're preoccupied with a different question than the one that Chad McIntosh set for us and that the rest of us are concerned with. We're not concerned with a semantic claim uh, about what counts as a doctrine of the Trinity. We want to know what we as Christians are required to believe about God and whether it's coherent. And the only Positive argument you give for your doctrine of the Trinity is this theophanies problem, but you admit that's only a necessary and not a sufficient condition of Gregory and Nyssa's doctrine. So it seems to me that you've failed at least in the probative task that Chad set for us in this volume. How would you respond to that? Well, uh, so the
3: question was about the doctrine of the Trinity as the book was laid out, so not uh, what Christians are required to believe and, and so forth. Uh, so that's why I picked Gregory of because I think it would be crazy to say that his views aren't a version of the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, if you want to talk about uh, whether it's biblical or not, I mean, I, I just would say, if you think that his views uh, don't cohere with the Bible, then you should just say you reject the doctrine of the Trinity, or at least anyway, one, one version of it, uh, because you think it doesn't uh, cohere with the Bible, which is what Dale says. As far as the theophany problem not being uh, enough to kind of get you all the way to trinitarianism, I mean, I would say the same thing about much of what you wrote. The Arians would agree with all of the the linguistic evidence you you gave. Just they they would say uh, they think there's kind of a different divine nature. Uh, there's multiple divine natures. The semi-Arians would agree uh, too. They'd say, yeah, Jesus is divine in exactly the same way as the Father. These they're just kind of two different instances. Uh, they're they're divided. So. But also, I would say, I mean, you know you use the phrase a dagger in the heart of Unitarianism. And I would say uh, the Theophany problem is a dagger in the heart potentially of uh, of the Socinian sort of view of Unitarianism because it automatically entails uh, the pre-existence of Christ. And it certainly seems odd to think that uh, the the person that Moses spoke to at uh, the burning bush was a preacher.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I certainly would agree with that.
1: Odd. Why should that be odd if God chooses to interact through created angels? There's nothing seemingly improbable about that. There's nothing seemingly impossible about it. In fact, the New Testament authors seem to suggest in a couple places that the law was revealed through angels, which are by definition, I think at least in the New Testament period, creatures, not just like appearances of God or something. And as I point out in the book, New Testament authors don't seem interested in identifying some one being who is always the intermediary, the angel of the Lord, through whom God appears to people in the Old Testament. Maybe it's one angel, or maybe it's not always the same one. So not only do they not say that that's Jesus, like Justin Martyr does, but they don't even say that it has to be one person, this one whom Dr. Branson is calling the theophany figure which, you know, presupposes that it's one every time.
0: You say Tuggy could classify Gregory of Nyssa's doctrine of the Trinity as non-trinitarianism. Mm-hmm. That seems to me correct, and that's my fear, not in the semantic sense, which simply defines the doctrine of the Trinity to be Gregory of Nyssa's doctrine of the Trinity, but in the sense that the Son and the Spirit are not truly God, doesn't that cause some disquiet here?
3: So not truly God because of the, well, the doctrine of Well, because
0: they're not archae Yeah, They're not the unbegotten so source is. of all things. Yeah,
3: I mean, I find that a really odd uh, objection. I mean, no one seems to have really denied that until like the late 1600s, right? Mm. So, I mean, you'd have to take a position like... Uh, no one believed in the biblical doctrine of the trinity or no one believes in what you call the doctrine of the trinity until late in the Protestant, you know after the protestant reformation in the 1600s or something i just i think that's an odd thing to say <laughs>
1: <laughs> so it's well known that craig denies that the father eternally generates the son and eternally spirits the spirit because this would imply the ontological inferiority of the Son and spirit neither would exist assay which is arguably required by divinity or by being the greatest possible being. And Branson is kind of pushing back with a historical point that, hey, come on, this was just part and parcel of the doctrine of the Trinity. A doctrine of the Trinity without processions, that is eternal generation and eternal procession, is basically a modern phenomenon. I think he's right about that. If we're talking about you know the kind of fully developed creedal doctrine like you see being enforced after 380, Although I think Craig is right about the Bible not teaching this and about it actually implying the ontological inferiority of the Son and the Spirit. And of course, Craig, as will come out more later, just doesn't care, really, about the fully developed creedal small-c Catholic doctrine of the Trinity. That very thing that you might think that he's setting out to defend. When the Trinity's podcast returns... Dr. Craig asks me what he thinks is a devastating question.
0: you can have one more quick question. Just one. All right. To Dale Tuggy then, in your closing statement you say, an army of apologists and conservative systematic theologians assure us that some Trinity doctrine or other is clearly implied by all that Scripture says. In contrast, none of this book's Trinity theory defenders agrees that any such doctrine is part of the contents of the New Testament books being obviously implied or assumed by such. That's exactly what I believe. So I wonder, how could you have so mysteriously misread me?
1: (laughs) Okay, so Dr. Craig is coming in pretty hot there, pretty aggressive, basically accusing me of, like, stupidly missing the point. Actually... Mm, it's not me who's missing the point? So, in my opening chapter, I define two hypotheses about the New Testament authors, one I call Hypothesis T for Trinitarian. It's that they assume the numerical identity of the one God with, the Trinity, the full deity of the Son, and the full deity of the Holy Spirit. That, I claim, is what most trinitarian apologists and systematic theologians are claiming is implicitly taught in the new testament i'm pitting that against hypothesis u for unitarian which is that the new testament authors assume the numerical identity of the one god with the father and that neither the son nor the holy spirit is fully divine that is divine in the way the father is divine now what all three authors do is they decline to defend t they decline to defend that the authors of the New Testament think the one God just is the Trinity and that the Son and Spirit are fully divine, including Craig. They say, aha, you're putting you up against a straw man that no informed Trinitarian would stand for. Well, tons of informed Trinitarians do defend what I call T about the New Testament authors and more. To put it differently, when Craig says he's going to defend his minimal biblical trinity, he thereby just is by definition giving up on creedal orthodoxy, and he's defending something less than T, as I just explained it. Specifically, he's left out the triune God part, even though you just heard him seemingly imply the existence of a triune God at the start of this episode. More on that later. Okay, so here I am answering back. And I do it gently and with some hesitation. Well, I remember in part of the book, you, uh, I believe, if I remember right, correct me if I'm wrong, that you said the rival hypothesis, hypothesis T is something that no Trinitarian would stand up to because it was basically an anachronism. So it was the claim that uh, the one God is the Trinity and each of the persons are fully divine or something like that. Right? I think it was that was the reason. Hasker, by the way, clearly agrees with me. It's not part of the contents of the New Testament, but he thinks it's kind of the best explanation of what's there. Right? I think Bo agree agrees with me as well. He
0: thinks there is a biblical doctrine of the Trinity, and if I may follow up. Uh Oh, oh,
1: well, sorry. Yeah, your your minimal view isn't going to count. It doesn't have enough claims. It doesn't, it doesn't mention a triune God.
0: Even so. though it meets the desiderata for a doctrine of the Trinity that you lay out in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article on the no, Trinity that you no, wrote.
1: No, 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 because I say it's popularly expressed that way. Commonly like poorly, expressed. Yeah, yeah, like not well. So here, and in the book, he kind of cherry-picks the first sentence out of my Stanford Encyclopedia article on the Trinity. That article starts like this, I say, "A Trinity doctrine is commonly expressed as the statement that the one God exists as or in three equally divine persons." He seems to think that his minimal biblical view fits with that, but it actually doesn't because what I just said implies the existence of a tripersonal God, and it also and and my statement also mentions the Father, Son, and Spirit, and his statement doesn't. I continue, Every term in this statement, God, exists, as or in, equally divine, person, has been variously understood. The guiding principle has been the creedal declaration that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of the New Testament are consubstantial, i.e., the same in substance or essence, Greek homoousios). Because this shared substance or essence is a divine one, this is understood to imply that all three named individuals are divine, and equally so— Yet the three, in some sense, are the one God of the Bible. So no, his so-called biblical Trinity shouldn't count as a doctrine of the Trinity for anyone, whether Unitarian or Trinitarian. And nothing about my first sentence there helps cover up the nakedness of this obviously too thin definition of his. Okay, so
0: the doctrine—your minimal view—I don't—I don't don't count as a creedal doctrine.
1: I mean, look, people that want to defend a doctrine of the Trinity just mean, Dr. Craig, a creedal doctrine. You punt on that as soon as the book starts. I'm not defending a creedal doctrine. Right. You have those the ultra-minimalistic two sentences. Yes. It doesn't even You don't even name the Father, Son, and Spirit. You don't even mention a tripersonal God. Like, that's mighty thin soup.
0: Well, what I...
1: I can see how you think that might be in the New Testament, but most people wouldn't count, most Trinitarians wouldn't count that as... A doctrine of the Trinity. Well, I guess
0: that remains to be seen. I think that they probably would.
1: Well, I'll be interested to see what most readers of the book think, as well as reviewers of the book. I think that this minimalistic, idiosyncratic definition just obviously shouldn't count as Trinitarian. Again, his exact words are, one, there is exactly one God, and two, there are exactly three distinct persons who are properly called god right the first is just monotheism and the second is a point about the word god and how it applies to three distinct persons that falls way short of counting as a doctrine of the trinity trinitarians back me up on this one
0: but in any case with regard to doctrine t why do you say that all of your books interlocutors disavow t rather than say, all agree that I have misformulated T, which is what we all said, that you set up a straw man.
1: <laughs> what? Misformulate? It's my hypothesis. It says exactly what I wanted it to say. And what it says is in fact defended by Catholic and Protestant apologists and systematic theologians. What my three interlocutors said is, so I'm comparing two explanations uh, as regards those 20 facts, which I think are facts. Dr. Craig gets off the bus with some of them, Uh, but I think Hasker agrees with almost all of them, and I think Dr. Branson agrees with all, all or almost all. I'm comparing the thesis that they're Unitarians, they think the one God is the Father and no one else is as divine as that, versus that they're Trinitarians, they think the one God is the Trinity, the three divine Persons. Okay, I was a little sloppy there speaking off the cuff both times. T just says that the one God is the Trinity and that the Son and Spirit are fully divine. I actually don't mention the Father. I guess I could have, but I in fact didn't in the book. So what I said here in summarizing T isn't quite right. Nor, of course, is his T star, again, just his minimal, quote, biblical Trinity theory, a reformulation of my thesis T. What all of them have said is your hypothesis, you, isn't the best explanation of those facts. That's what they've all said. But I don't think they've actually given a better explanation of the facts that I point out. Dr. Craig, you suggest that a better explanation is what you have, like T star. This is your minimal theory. And that just doesn't explain most of the facts that I'm pointing at. Branson offers his monarchical Trinitarianism. Hasker just points at a couple of books which I don't think it do it. They're about early theology, but I don't think they do any such thing as explaining those facts that I'm concerned with. All right, I'm sure this conversation is going to continue. But Dr. Branson, the uh, floor is yours.
3: Okay, uh, well, I guess, um, I guess we'll start with Dale. Um, are there two saviors? Yes. Okay. Um, (laughs) Would you? Would you also? I mean, so how do you reconcile that with Isaiah saying there's only one Savior?
1: Well, I take it the background assumption is you know he's contrasting himself with all the gods of the nations, and out of all of those, yeah, he's the only one that's going to save Israel. That would be the Father. The Father, slash Yahweh i mean look i think in one sense jesus is a savior savior he died for our sins in another different sense the father is a savior he sent the son so they're both going to be able to be called savior it's just a word that has different meanings like lord okay as i remarked in the last episode it seems to me that sometimes dr branson doesn't distinguish between verbal and metaphysical questions and so when he looks at god saying i'm the only savior I think he understands that to mean that only I am, quote, Savior. Only I can properly be called Savior, which, of course, isn't the same thing. You can be a unique Savior and not be the only one who can truly and properly be referred to as Savior. Just like you can be the one true God, and yet others are referred to as, quote, God. As I say in the book, and I've said elsewhere, the Bible is everywhere in favor of monotheism, there's only one God, but it everywhere assumes the falsity of monotheosism, that there's only one who can properly be called God. No, there are a number of proper uses of the term God, and given those, it applies to more than God. What
3: about deity as you define the term deity? Would you say the Father and the Son are two different deities
1: that we worship? Are you using deity in the highly technical sense of that one article? In in the highly technical sense of your article,
3: uh, counting gods.
1: If a deity just means, as I discuss in this one article called On Counting Gods, if it just means basically a supernaturally powerful self, then Jesus is going to count as a deity now that he's raised and exalted. But God is automatically, being a God is going to automatically count Mm -hmm. as a deity too. Okay. Monotheism concerns the concept of a God, not this lesser concept of a deity. But we worship God and then another deity. Yes, that's right. Although keep in mind that this other deity is, in fact, the man Jesus, risen, exalted, made immortal, presumably given some upgrades in power and knowledge and goodness. Why? Because it looks like his current job would require more than typical human powers. And yet it is a New Testament doctrine that he is, even being made immortal, still a man.
3: Here's a question that I always have. So uh, this is kind of a softball. Let's say, let me give you a 100% chance that you are right about your interpretation of the New Testament. So if I saw two, let's say, Muslim apologists arguing that the Quran says this, no, it says this other thing. Well, I've got more evidence it says this, more evidence says that. I would probably come away from that thinking, gee, it looks like the Quran contradicts itself, right? If those could be, if they could both be true at the same time, great. But if not, then uh, it's probably a contradiction. So, let's give you a 100% chance that the Bible is Unitarian. Why should I not think, I mean, if I read all of Craig's evidence and, and some of the things that I talked about in my response to you, why is there not more than a 50% chance that at least somewhere in the New Testament, it ascribes deity or divinity to Christ? So, it's just contradictory.
1: Okay, I'll be honest here. I totally did not understand the question the comment about probability got me thinking down a wrong track and then I wasn't doing a good job listening to the rest of the question. So I fumble around and say some things and eventually Dr. Branson takes pity on me and lets me go. But um, after all that happens, I'll try to give a better answer to what I now understand that he was asking. Uh, Because people think that, isn't there a chance that it says that? That kind of no, no, no. Thing. I mean, if, if just, let's say just
3: one, I mean, uh, Craig gives like eight different, you know, places where Jesus is called God. If just one of those was intended to ascribe divinity to Christ, then right. you would just have to say, well, I guess the New Testament's just contradictory. Not that it's consistently Unitarian. I'm sorry, I'm not quite following the question. So I why mean, isn't there at least uh, a 50% chance that, uh, or at least a pretty decent chance that somewhere the Bible ascribes divinity to Christ, in a way that's inconsistent with Unitarianism.
1: Just because that's a popular view? No, because of the evidence, the arguments that were... I mean, look, if I'm talking to my Muslim friend, Christian disagreement is somewhat embarrassing, uh, especially about central things. Uh, Although he's going to well know that there are schools of thought in Islam that, in his view, go way off the rails. And people just continue to hold to them, not because they make the best sense, but because it's traditional and it kind of sort of makes sense. You can see how you'd look at it that way. Okay. I'm I not mean, sure. Is, but... Okay. Dr. Branson's being polite there. He's just letting me get off so we can move on. Um, so if I'm just coming as an outsider to all of these issues and I see the experts disagreeing, yes, I might think that in fact, maybe just the texts are inconsistent Uh, How else could it be that this one expert, Dr. Tuggy, thinks that the Jesus of the New Testament is not supposed to be fully divine, and here we have Dr. Craig, who seems to think that it's just blazingly obvious. I mean, that would be one explanation, that they're both right, but about different parts. You might also think that when experts disagree, then an ordinary person is just doomed to skepticism about the matter, because how are they even entitled to have an opinion when the experts disagree? But now, Dr. Branson was asking about the actual evidence and not just broad considerations like I just mentioned. And this is what I think I missed in trying to listen to his question and failing. What an ordinary person can do in this debate is they can look not just at Dr. Craig's eight passages where allegedly Theos is applied to Jesus, but they can look at the broad whole New Testament picture and they can see a whole lot of things that actually make it pretty clear that full deity is not on the table for him. God is necessarily and essentially immortal. Jesus dies. God is essentially all-knowing. Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour. God is so perfect that he can't be tempted even in principle. Jesus gets tempted to do wrong. God is necessarily top-level in authority. Jesus takes orders from God. So I don't think the ordinary person is doomed to skepticism, just because the experts disagree. Nor do I think they're really forced into the conclusion that probably these texts are inconsistent. Look, these texts come from a fairly tight place in time. They're all written within 50 to 100 years. They're all written in a fairly tight circle of people and a fairly small portion of the world, probably. And of course, Jesus is the central subject of all these writings in the New Testament. No, you wouldn't expect them to be contradicting themselves about a central point, about this central subject of their concern. So that's what I hope is a better answer. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Craig describes his, quote, revelation about identity in antiquity. Dr. Branson has a question for Dr. Craig.
3: Dr. Craig, could you clarify, so at one point you say that people in antiquity didn't have any concept of numerical identity, as we understand it. Identity Uh, relations. Identity relations. You seem to have a problem with the idea, though, of counting, the idea of any kind of analysis of counting or number that would use a different relation. Um, Could you just kind of explain?
0: that? Well, to get at the first point, I think that the central revelation that came to me in working on this subject was the realization that the modern relation of identity was virtually unknown in the ancient
1: world dr craig mentioned this revelation that came to him and i actually learned about this back in 2022 because i'm a fairly regular listener of his reasonable faith podcast And obviously, on the blog post for this episode at Trinities.org, I'll put a link where you can listen to this whole episode of Dr. Craig's podcast if you're interested. You see, in 2022, Dr. Craig and his wife went to Florida, where they unfortunately contracted COVID. And this actually landed Dr. Craig in the hospital for a while. This, it turns out, was the scene of this revelation.
0: While I was in the hospital at first, I had nothing to do but lie in bed. Uh, And there was a phone in the room, and so I would call Jan and talk to her. And so she says to me, well, while you're lying in bed, why don't you think of a philosophical problem? What a woman! So I thought, (laughs) yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So I decided to think about the problem of identity and the doctrine of the Trinity. And I think, Kevin, I came to some genuine insights about this, that I have since written up after I got home and incorporated into my chapter on the Trinity. Uh, And let me try to share this with our listeners as simply as I can. An author a number of years ago named uh, Wainwright wrote a book on the Trinity. Terrible book, by the way. He argued that most of the authors of the New Testament weren't even aware that there is a problem of The Trinity. For them, the notion was unproblematic. He says he thinks that Paul and the author of the book of Hebrews and John sensed that there was a problem here, but only John really grasped it and proposed a solution to it. And that really got me to thinking why would the authors of the New Testament not be aware that the doctrine of the Trinity is problematic? And then it hit me, Kevin. The authors of the New Testament, the ancients in general, didn't have a modern grasp of the relation of identity. Hmm. The relation of identity is the strongest equivalence relation that holds between an object and itself and nothing else. And this is a relation which is reflexive, symmetric, and transitive— But you can show that the ancients didn't have a modern grasp of the identity relation. Aristotle alone in his topics has a paragraph on the identity relation, but it was overlooked and forgotten for centuries until others rediscovered these insights later. And so when the authors of the New Testament said things like, Jesus is God, the Father is God— but Jesus is not the Father. They just didn't see any problem with that. In order to see that as problematic, you've got to have a grasp of the logical relation of identity, which these ancient authors did not have.
1: Did you hear that? He went from saying they didn't have a modern understanding of identity to having any understanding of identity. Right? If you have any understanding of the concept of identity, then you can identify things. You can say, this is just the same as that. Really, we're just referring to one thing in two different ways when we're making a claim like that. Okay, but that they didn't have a modern understanding, that's obviously true, but it's kind of a trivial point. That they didn't have any understanding or any grasp of the concept of being the same thing as is extremely controversial and extremely implausible. And he doesn't have an argument for it. I don't think he's distinguishing between these two claims the obvious one and the super implausible one. And I'll say later briefly why I think it's super implausible. But for now, he continues.
0: And so I think that we are in real danger of overreading them, of importing into their statements modern concepts of identity that they simply didn't have.
1: <laughs> Did you catch that again? Now we're back to they didn't have a modern view of identity, right? They didn't have to have that. The question is, do they have any concept, any grasp at all of being the same thing as? Because that's all they need to identify things in their minds.
0: And so when they said things like the Father is God, the Son is God, they didn't intend for these to be identity statements in a modern sense of the word. And so for them, I think the notion of the Trinity just didn't even appear to be Problematic. So for me, this was really a major new insight into the New Testament material on the doctrine of the Trinity.
1: Keep in mind, this whole time, like Wainwright, Dr. Craig seems to be assuming that they had some awareness of a triune God. Well, there's no evidence for that, and there's really strong evidence against that, which is something I point out in the book, indeed, kind of what I start with. They don't have any word or phrase that was, at that time, understood to refer to a triune God. Look, if they believed in such a thing, that's the first thing they would do is come up with some linguistic way to refer to it. Okay, but we're supposing here that they're kind of aware of the Trinity, but they don't think it's a problem because they don't have a modern concept of identity, or maybe they just don't have the concept. One of those two. And Bill, hearing you say that, one of the things that occurs to me is how we, as ambassadors of Christ, have tried so hard to reach to our Jehovah's Witness friends, our Mormon friends, our Muslim friends, because all of them, those three I mentioned there, have issues with the Trinity, and we find ourselves trying to go to proof texts, trying to go to the scriptures and go to the scriptural data, which is quite appropriate, but... How would this play in, do you think, when you have a dialogue with a Mm -hmm. thoughtful member of like the LDS or Jehovah's Witness or Muslim? Note the question's assumption that this is just a view that cultists take, or people in other religions. Guys, this is and has always been a dispute among mainstream Bible-oriented Christians, whatever outsiders and more marginal groups may think
0: it would come into play when they read statements like the Father is God as an identity statement, and they would say, therefore, it cannot be true that the Son is God, because identity is a transitive relation. If X is identical to Y and Y is identical to Z, then X is identical to Z. So if you say the Father is God, and the Son is God, that implies that the Son is identical to the Father, Mm -hmm. if you read those as identity statements. And I'm convinced that these ancient authors didn't intend these to be identity statements in the modern sense, because they didn't even have a modern grasp of the theory of identity. And this really undercuts a large portion of the argument offered by various Unitarians against the Trinity by saying it's an incoherent doctrine.
1: Notice his assumption in that end part that, quote, critics of the Trinity, people such as me, are primarily concerned to urge that it's incoherent, that it's inconsistent with itself. Now, that is a concern. Whether or not it applies depends on quite what your Trinity theory is. I would say it applies only to some, but not to other Trinity theories. But of course, you shouldn't go around assuming that that's the main concern. The concerns of Christians like me are primarily Biblical. First of all, any Trinity theory, because it identifies the one God as the Trinity, contradicts the New Testament, which identifies the one God as the Father alone. Second, you can't actually derive any Trinity theory from the New Testament. No triune God theory is actually implicit in the text like so many claim, nor is any Trinity theory the best explanation of what's in the text. Maybe another book will come out of this, (laughs) Bill.
0: Well, my systematic philosophical theology is going to have a long chapter on the Trinity in it, and that is exactly what I'm writing on now.
1: Okay, so that's his great revelation. He's found this silver bullet to defeat the terrible Unitarians. It just doesn't work later in this podcast. I'll show you a couple places in the new Testament, which clearly reveal that the people do grasp the concept being the same thing as
0: if you look at a book like William and Martha Neal's history of logic, there's only one place in Aristotle where he has a couple of sentences is all where he mentions it. And then it fell into obscurity and Neil and Neil say, this didn't reemerge until centuries later. And so Aristotle doesn't get the credit he deserves for his original insights. The, the ancients did not have a concept of the modern relation of identity as a symmetric, reflexive, transitive, equivalence relation. And therefore to interpret their statements like the Father is God or Christ is God as identity statements is attributing to them a grasp of a relation that they didn't have.
1: No, modern grasp. You don't have to have a modern grasp to collapse what ostensibly were two things down into one thing. Imagine you're a very casual reader of Genesis, and you pick it up in ancient times, and you see Abram, and you read a paragraph about him. Okay, I've heard of this Abram guy. And then a couple weeks later, you pick it up, scroll again, you read about Abraham, he does some things. Oh, okay, hmm, I know about Abraham now. And you're assuming that these are two different guys. Of course, you're mistaken. So then when you get a chance to maybe sit down and spend a day reading the whole thing, or at least all the Abraham parts of it front to back, you're going to identify Abram and Abraham. This does not require any grasp of the logic of identity, either as explained by modern logicians or even ancient logicians like Aristotle. It's just a basic kind of thought that all humans are capable of. And that's why few to know ancients understanding identity in the way that modern logicians do is irrelevant.
0: Now, certainly they could know, for example, that the father is the father, that, yes, A is A. That, that's not a problem. They would grasp that.
1: Well, okay, then they do have some grasp of the concept being the same thing as if they can realize that everything has to be the same thing as itself.
0: But the idea that if a is b and b is c that a is c that relation of the transitivity of identity wasn't grasped
1: now this specific claim of ancient ignorance i think is implausible in the extreme go back to my thought experiment about an ancient reader of genesis discovering that abram and abraham are supposed to be one and the same guy and so one in the same thing Suppose that he was a Samaritan or that he spoke some other language and in his culture actually also talked about Abraham, but they called him some different word. Let's just imagine they call him Abe. Okay, so he hasn't read Genesis in the Hebrew or the Greek yet, but he's heard stories about Abe. When he first picks up the book of Genesis and starts reading it, he believes in Abe, then he encounters Abram, And he assumes those are two. He's not making the connection that it's supposed to be the same guy. Then he reads about Abraham. And he assumes that Abraham is different than Abram. And Abraham is not the same guy as Abe. He's assuming these are three different ones. Abe, Abram, and Abraham. But now he decides he's going to go back and read the story again. And as he's reading the initial part, the Abram part, it suddenly dawns on him. Oh, this is about Abe. This Abram is the guy we call Abe. So he has that realization. And then as he continues through the narrative, he also realizes that Abram and Abraham are one and the same. It's just a name change. It's not two guys like he was assuming. Okay. Having made those two realizations, could our ancient person reason like this? Abe just is Abram. And also, Abram just is Abraham. Well, obviously it follows from that, that Abe just is Abraham. That seems like pretty easy reasoning to me. So, first, he collapses together Abe with Abram. Then he collapses together Abram with Abraham. And then he realizes, oh, Abraham too must be Abe. I think any reader of normal intelligence would be able to follow what i just said and think those thoughts that he can reason like that shows that he understands that the relation same thing as is transitive now is there any logician on the face of the earth at this time who has a logic which can account for this and build it into the logical kind of uh, technical machinery it doesn't matter it's irrelevant does it matter that this guy can't explain the transitivity of identity or really explain kind of how he's reasoning no i don't think it matters what matters is he has a concept of same thing as and one evidence of that is he can reason like i just described
0: this is just fatal for tony's interpretation of the new testament data as identity statements
1: okay and now he's turning to dr bo branson
0: now what i want to know from you and this this was a question i had for you you studied at notre dame you you must have studied with michael ray while you were there he was so does ray's relation Mm -hmm. of numerical sameness without identity is that the relation you're appealing to in your view of the trinity that the father and the Son? Are numerically the same object, but they're not identical. It's numerical sameness without identity.
3: Yeah. So you, I mean, you could maybe try to argue that what I've said entails that or something, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about. I mean, it's like John Stuart Mill defines number in this way in *System of Logic*. Right? He says you just take an aggregate and then have how many parts you can separate it out into. That's the number of s. You could argue that that maybe that entails something about numerical sameness with that identity, yeah. but
0: Boy, if that's not you mean, what you meant, then <laughs> I don't understand yeah. what you
3: meant. I gotta say, read Mill. Um, but I, but <laughs> I'm still under, I'm still trying to figure out how 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 people in the New Testament counted. If they didn't have a concept of yeah. identity as we understand it, did they count with the concept that they didn't have, or they weren't able to count, or they counted with a different concept? Uh-huh. What, what?
0: I I couldn't. couldn't No idea. Yeah, I mean, what I'm talking about are those properties of the identity relationship, like transitivity, reflexivity, and Mm -hmm. and so forth, that weren't part of their their grasp. But they could certainly count three balls. I mean, yeah, one, two, three. Uh, I mean,
3: when when Aristotle and Nicomachus of Gerasa and uh, Alexander of Aphrodisias always go talk about number and quantity, and they say the, the way it works is division, what you can separate things into. Do you think? really they thought it was identity or you know they didn't have the concept or you think people said that but what they were really doing was counting by identity or i have no idea okay all
1: right. yeah there's more in the book about counting and counting by division as opposed to counting by identity that's one thing if you want to go deeper you'll have to really go to the book and see what dr branson says about those topics again hang on In a bit, I'll give you evidence that New Testament era people did understand the concept of identity, and so they could have counted by identity.
0: Well, one thing is for sure we can't count the five minutes. minutes.
1: (laughs) When the Trinities podcast returns, it's my turn to ask the questions. Dr. Tuggy. Okay, hopefully I can get in two questions for Dr. Craig and one for Dr. Branson. Dr. Craig, in this book you write, quote, The Trinity seems to be a plurality, not an individual, which is made up of the three divine persons. We should not accept the claim that the Trinity is identical with God, for God is clearly an individual, not a group. The Trinity is simply the group of the divine persons, which is not itself an individual, end quote. Okay, so who then is the individual who just is the one God, given that, as you just said, it can't be the Trinity, or you might say a triad?
0: Well, I would just say it is God. It is the tripersonal God. It's an immaterial substance that is tripersonal.
1: The quote I just said, you said that God is an individual, but the Trinity isn't an individual.
0: Yes, right. I and so I'm not identifying um, that substance with the Trinity. It's, it's. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that the Trinity here is the concept of a group, uh, like say the Kentucky Derby, the Belmont Stakes, and the Preakness. And you might talk about uh, how it's difficult to win the trifecta, and that it's. Uh, hasn't been done since Secretariat or something like that. But there isn't anything, any substance called the trifecta. That's just the group of those three races. So similarly, we could talk about the group of these three divine persons as the trinity, but the substance that actually exists is this immaterial soul that has three centers of self-consciousness, intentionality, and will.
1: So, the one God is the soul or the divine nature, but not strictly speaking the Trinity. Right. However, there is a Trinity. Identity. Now, maybe this exchange right there is the key to understanding Dr. Craig's current Trinity theory. As the book was being written and we were going back and forth, I was kind of tearing my hair out trying to understand what on earth Dr. Craig thinks about the Trinity. It was clear that his position had shifted somewhat from his previous position as expressed in his co-authored book philosophical foundations for a christian worldview first published in 2003 there he clearly does identify the trinity with the one true god as i point out and you know going back to the time of augustine there is a use of the term the trinity on which it refers to the one god and i think that's normal for a trinitarian now, you heard in that clip a while ago that he's just reread some work by Michael Ray, and he kind of alluded to that in his question to Branson. Ray suggests that, hey, maybe Trinity, that word, is a plural referring term and not a singular referring term. And that seems to be Craig's view. So there's this person, that person, and the other person, and they're just a group. They're like the three musketeers. You can slap a label on this group, but it's still fundamentally a group, not an individual. So any word or phrase that refers to it has to be understood as a plural referring expression, not a singular referring expression or term. So there's a tripersonal God, as he says in the book, this one soul that is God. But the tripersonal God isn't the Trinity. The Trinity is just a plural referring term for the three persons. The three persons, then, are not, in any objective sense, one thing. However, they're all in one thing. That's his thought. There's this soul that, because it has three cognitive faculties, it somehow, in some sense, gives rise to or supports or something. This group of three, each one of them. So there is a trinity, but it isn't God. Or rather, they aren't God. They aren't anything at all, in his new view and so they can't be the thing which is God. Identity is a one-to-one relation. A group of three can't be identical to any one thing, because it's not a one thing. Is this a Trinity theory? Yes, I think it is, because it has a tripersonal God. What's unusual about it is that it's going back to the older use of the term Trinity. Someone like Origen, for him, the three persons were not a tripersonal God in any sense. But rather the triad was god and then god's logos and god's spirit again for someone like samuel clark early modern unitarian subordinationist he writes a book called the scripture doctrine of the trinity he's using the trinity as a plural referring expression for god the son of god and the spirit of god basically for god and two lesser divine beings which is basically Origen's view too so craig wants to go back to the older plural referring use of the term trinity as opposed to the more common trinitarian use of the term trinity where it is a term for the tripersonal god so there is a trinity it isn't god it isn't anything it's fundamentally a group trinity is just a label to refer to those three different things how is this trinity related to the one god well i think that's where his model of the trinity becomes desperately unclear It has something to do with that one soul having three sets of cognitive faculties, but you'll have to see what he says in the book and see if you think it makes any sense. But just briefly, notice how it clashes with the New Testament. Is the one God the Father? No, none of the Trinity is a God. No individual one is a God, nor are they a God collectively. They're just divine persons, which is something, as I'm about to point out, less than being a God. So relative to the New Testament, the Father has been demoted from being the one God to not being a God. And relative to mainstream tradition, which insists that each person individually is God, well, that's all false too. So it's against mainstream tradition in that way. Okay, I have another question for you. You write, Dr. Craig, that there's one kind of divinity had by the divine persons and another kind of divinity had by the one God. You've also argued for two decades that perfection requires being multipersonal. Thus, it seems to me that in your view, the God kind of divinity is greater than the person kind of divinity because only the first implies absolute perfection. Why then do you argue in the book that the New Testament authors ascribe full or the highest or the one God type of divinity to Christ when in fact, your theology needs it to be the second tier divine person kind of identity?
0: Now, I take it that what you're referring
1: to is
0: my suggestion against Islam, or I guess this would be Unitarian views of God, that if God is morally perfect, then he must be an all-loving being, and that therefore he cannot be an isolated monad or individual. But since the persons that he loves essentially can't be creatures they must be internal to his own being so god would be a tripersonal being
1: yes of course that is the argument i was referring to it's in that 2003 book and in a bunch of other statements on his website and things like that and also in a peer reviewed published paper i have thoroughly refuted that sort of argument as offered by dr craig and even by swinburne and others I'll put a link to this article on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. It's free at the Journal of Analytic Theology. It's called Anti-Unitarian Arguments from Divine Perfection.
0: And each of those persons would reflect that same moral perfection, it seems to me, because each one would be an all-loving person that together make up this tripersonal being that is maximally great i I don't think that's a problem
1: dr craig doesn't see a problem here but i do he's argued that a quote unipersonal god will be imperfect and that's a problem because the concept of god is the concept of a perfect being so if this is right then there would just be a contradiction built in to the concept of a god who's a single self He argues, in contrast, that a tripersonal God can be perfect in love. I don't think the argument works, but never mind that. Whatever considerations show that a unipersonal God can't be perfect in love, those considerations would also apply to each individual person of the Trinity, as Dr. Craig understands these. Just because the whole has the property of being perfect and also perfect in love It doesn't follow that the parts of it do or however you want to characterize these less than the whole persons again if multi-personality is required for being perfect in love then it looks like these individuals are not going to be perfect in love and so therefore are not going to be perfect but remember my point here was primarily biblical He's known for a long time that he needs two different kinds of divinity. He needs divine to mean two different things. One thing as applied to God, where he thinks it implies perfection and tripersonality, and then a lower sense of divinity, where it doesn't imply being a god and where it doesn't imply tri-personality, and therefore, by his arguments, we don't have implied perfection either, namely perfection and love. So, I try to press the point here. Well, it seems to me you need an in-between sense of deity for Christ because he can't have the highest kind of divinity, which implies being a god, because Christ himself is not tripersonal. Right, he's not an
0: instance of yeah. the divine nature. I agree with that. There isn't some abstract divine nature of which he is an instance, uh, so that you have three gods. But I like the way Hasker does this in his book in saying that they all share the same concrete divine nature that is to see that immaterial concrete substance and i think that's a really good contribution that hasker has made to these trinitarian debates
1: well as i point out in the book hasker too is committed to two kinds of divinity a god kind of divinity which seems greater and a second tier divinity which is the divinity of being a divine person and remember the original question had to do with the new testament you can't go around saying that jesus is called god in the highest sense or in a sense of being god being the one true god or the same sense as the father because your trinity theory has only god the triune god being god in the highest sense and none of the persons is god in the highest sense okay well i could have used another half an hour there and i wish i could asked some of my other craig questions but at this point i had to move on to dr branson and I decided to ask him something that has been bothering me for a while. Okay. In my last couple seconds, I want to ask a question for Dr. Branson. Dr. Branson, does orthodoxy about the Trinity, as you understand it, include or exclude people who hold to the numerical identity of the one God with the Trinity?
3: I mean, I guess it would depend on what they're means uh it the way you define the word god in uncounting gods and elsewhere is you know that the one to talk about the one god would be to talk about the archae so i'd say yeah in that sense you have to say that the father's the one god if that's how you define the, god the, word the god in the highest sense the can't be
1: the trinity to be uh, the if, if that's how you define the word god yeah yeah. Okay. yeah which is why i still think that his theology is unitarian
3: if you're talking about the word God in the sense of the divine nature sense of the term God, then I think you can say the Trinity is the one God in the sense that that Gregory does.
1: Oh boy. Okay. You're going to have to think back to the previous episode. So again, something super controversial goes by really fast and The audience just starts clapping, and that's kind of the end of it. But let me explain his thought. Again, there's more about this in the book. You'll have to see how he explains it. But my summary goes like this. If a god is a thing with a divine nature, then counting by identity, you'd have to count three things with a divine nature. Looks like it would be three gods. But in ancient times, following Aristotle and others, they didn't count by identity, they counted by division. And In some sense, the divine nature is indivisible within the three persons, and the persons are indivisible from one another. And so, if you're using God to mean thing with the divine nature, you have to count them as one thing with the divine nature. So, all three of them would be one God, meaning one thing with the divine nature. Even though we can distinguish this one, this one, and this one as non identical, still, you're supposed to count, as he says, by division. And counting that way, you get one. When the Trinity's podcast returns, another interesting exchange with Dr. Craig outside of this session. So the next day at the conference, I attended a long, I think it was two and a half or three hour session featuring as the two main speakers, Dr. William Lane Craig and the very accomplished Christian philosopher, mainly in metaphysics and philosophy of religion, Dr. Peter Van Inwagen, who I think is retired from the University of Notre Dame two absolutely brilliant thinkers very accomplished and they had a book session about a book that they have co-written together that isn't out yet in which they argue about abstract objects things like propositions numbers universal properties as plato and many other philosophers have theorized about dr van Inwagen believes that we just can't get away from believing in things like numbers and propositions We talk about them, and the truth of those sentences does, in fact, require that there are such things in reality. Dr. Craig is concerned that there's a conflict between abstract objects and our theology. You see, these abstracta are generally understood to be necessarily existing things, things that couldn't come into existence or go out of existence, things that just have to exist. Now, if a Christian wants to say that God has freely created everything other than God, it looks like you need to not believe in abstracta, because they're just by definition uncreatable. They're not part of the cosmos, they're not part of the physical world. They don't enter into cause and effect relations. It doesn't make sense to think of one as changing. They're very odd things if they are real things at all. And some philosophers, generally called nominalists, don't believe that there are any such things as abstract objects, such as numbers. Of course Van Inwagen had said that he does believe that God's the creator of everything. He just understands that everything to not include abstract objects. Now in this debate, I'm generally on the side of, I think Doctor Craig. I think it's best to do without positing the real existence of these abstract objects. And I think it is a better fit with our theology. And by the way, I would be remiss to not mention here that the book editor, Dr. Chad McIntosh, has a really great review of Dr. Craig's two books on this topic, called God Overall, Divine Osseity and the Challenge of Platonism, and then the bigger, higher-priced, more academic, God and Abstract Objects, The Coherence of Theism, Osseity. Dr. McIntosh has a really insightful review of those that I think reveals some serious problems for how Dr. Craig is thinking about osseity. I'll put a link to this double review on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. So anyway, I was in this book session. It was mostly about the metaphysics and about Ben Inwagen's arguments that we have to believe in abstracta, and there were some excellent papers offering comments by three different Christian philosophers. Uh, It was a very good, intellectually stimulating session overall, and I had my recorder with me, not because I was planning to put it in this podcast, but just because I thought I might want to listen to the whole thing later. So I decided to ask Dr. Craig a biblical question, because I kind of knew what he thought about this, but it hadn't really been mentioned in the discussion so far, and I thought that this might be helpful. And then, kind of as I'm asking him this question, I'm realizing, oh, this ties into what we were talking about yesterday. So this is what happened. Dr. Craig, at the beginning, Dr. Van Inwagen explained how he understood traditional Christian claims that God's the maker of the heavens and the earth, all that's seen and unseen. Could you say a little bit about what you think about the Bible rules that out?
0: Yes. In my book, God overall, I provide a detailed exegesis of a number of passages like the Prologue to the Gospel of John and several... Pauline passages that I think indicate that God is the sole ultimate reality the creator of everything other than himself and it doesn't matter whether or not the authors of scripture had the conception of abstract objects what they did have the conception of is that God was the universal cause of everything apart from himself that existed and that apart from him there was nothing That was uncreated. That is stated very clearly, I think, in Scripture. And then, provoked by Peter's codicil to the Nicene Creed that this only applies to causally related objects, I did some historical study of the Antonicene Church Fathers. And what I was surprised to discover was that leading up to Nicaea, there was a considerable discussion among the Church Fathers concerning the status of being agenitas, unoriginated or uncreated, and they were adamant that there was only one agenitas. And they explicitly rejected the views of Pythagoras and Plato that there were other agenitas, like numbers or properties or things of that sort. So even if they didn't have Peter's conception of what a property is, it was clear that these aniconic fathers were not willing to allow that there was anything, any agenitas, apart from God Himself, and so that was the dual basis for my theological commitments. It's and, really interesting, wholly really related to the doctrine of the Trinity, isn't it? Because the idea was that the Father is agenitas, but the Son is genitas in the sense of begotten.
1: So in patristic times and or in biblical times, they held that God is the creator of everything that's non-identical to God?
0: Yeah, well, they <laughs> uh, really held that everything apart from God has been created by God. Yeah.
1: I think That's what I just said. <laughs> so the point of that is, if you're capable of thinking that everything other than God is created by God— then you have the concept of a thing which is other than God, which is the same as a different thing than God, which is what we call something not identical to God. Again, that you can't discourse on the relation of identity, describe its you know necessary reflexivity, symmetricality, transitivity, that it forces indiscernibility. that you can't do that doesn't prevent you from employing the concept same thing as. And it's clear that ancient people had that, because ancient people generally had common sense like we have today. It's just part of how God made us that we're able to think these thoughts as adults. As the session continued, I whipped out my cool little pad device, and I scribbled out a formula and a sentence on it. And after the session, I went up to Dr. Craig and briefly discussed this with him. We just had about, I don't know, 30 seconds or a minute or something, so the discussion didn't go very far. But you can see what I wrote on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. First, I wrote the English sentence, God created everything else. And then under that, I wrote what Dr. Craig and pretty much all analytic philosophers would agree is the translation into logic of that sentence— that kind of properly represents the content of what's being said. And that sentence in Logic that I wrote reads, For any X whatever, if X is distinct from God, in other words, if X is not numerically identical with God, then God created X. So that's the analysis of that sentence that Dr. Craig and I, and most other analytic philosophers, agree on. And the concept of identity occurs in the translation. So, in our view, people who think that God created everything else do have and are employing the concept of same thing as, or numerical identity. I think that's why both of us were kind of nervously laughing at the end of the exchange. When the Trinity's podcast returns, can we show from the New Testament that ordinary people in that time had a concept of same thing as? Now, there are many passages in the Bible that reveal that ancient people were able to employ this concept. And maybe in a future article or book chapter, I'll go into more of these. But to finish out today's podcast, I just want to briefly expound on two of them. Sometimes you can just kind of see people reasoning in a way that reveals that they have a certain concept. And I think this passage is really a smoking gun. It's John seven forty-one to 43. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some asked, surely the Messiah does not come from Galilee, does he? Has not the scripture said that the Messiah is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? So there was a division in the crowd because of him. What we can see here is an account of the crowd applying what philosophers now call the distinctness of discernibles. In other words, if you can see a difference between this and that, then this and that really are two things and not one and the same thing. What are those two things? Jesus, with whom they're familiar, and the Messiah, who is a present or future person that these folks believe in. And what these folks are asking themselves is, are Jesus and the Messiah one and the same, or are they two? And some of them, it reports, reason that Jesus cannot be the Messiah. That those have to be two on what basis the messiah has to come from bethlehem and this guy comes from galilee not bethlehem so the messiah has a certain property jesus lacks that property therefore jesus and the messiah are two that's the reasoning is that exactly how they would put it no but it doesn't matter What's most distinctive about the same thing as relation is that it forces absolute qualitative objective sameness. And so when we discover any objective difference between things, we realize they really are things and not just thing. That's one way to put this kind of reasoning. Now, never mind that these guys are mistaken. According to the gospel writers, Jesus does come from Bethlehem, okay? But they know him as coming from Galilee, and they're saying he can't be the Messiah based on that. So here's a crowd of seemingly ordinary people, not disciples of Aristotle or some other ancient logician, asking a same-thing-as question regarding the Messiah and Jesus. Some answer affirmatively that Jesus and the Messiah are one and the same. That's why it says others said this is the Messiah. But others answered negatively, based on a supposed simultaneous difference between the Messiah and Jesus. If that doesn't show that they understand the same thing as relation, then I don't know what would show it. Short of a discourse on the logic of those sorts of statements and arguments. There's another clear case of people sort of collapsing together what they assume to be two. This is the famous story about the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. Basically, two disciples meet and converse at length with a stranger whom they assume to be distinct from Jesus. And then suddenly, at a certain point, they realize, no, this stranger is in fact Jesus himself. They go from thinking this is somebody other than Jesus to thinking that this is Jesus himself. The so-called stranger is distinct, uh, but then no, the so-called stranger is identical to Jesus. That's the reasoning. Now, as Dr. Craig made this claim that ancient people lack either any concept of same thing as, or at least the modern concept, Is that his big defense against Unitarianism in his forthcoming systematic theology? Honestly, I hope not, because it's a terrible argument, and he's better than that. I think he should be able to see the difference between being able to discourse about the identity relation, as logicians now do, and just having that concept and being able to employ it competently. If that's your bulwark against Unitarian interpretations of the New Testament, the argument is not going to go well for you. Next week on the Trinity's Podcast, you'll hear the rest of my audio from this session, which consists of audience Q&A time. This week's Thinking Music has been the track Cardboard Engineering by Jesse Spillane. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, where you can listen to or download that entire track.